leave you a little bit of leave you a little vulnerable. But I'm just wondering, are there any awkward people here this morning? Awkward people. So you, we call them klutzes. I mean, I have just been awkward since the day I was born. I, they were just, I'm awkward during worship. So I, you know, that I see some people who are really free and expressive in worship and they raise a hand and, and I, I'm not quite there. Like I do this half in, half off. I mean, like, I just don't know what to, I've never been really comfortable with my body. And so I, I don't know if you're maybe that way. You're an awkward person too. Sometimes I'm a little awkward. I can kind of mask it. But then when I get nervous, especially, it, it just, it comes out in waves. I, I go from a little awkwardness to a whole lot of awkwardness really quick. So this happened to me the other day. Friday morning, my boss uh, had to attend a funeral in the southern part of the state. My boss is very connected. Um, he goes to every meeting in the Tri-County area, loves people, is just a, a very friendly, outgoing. Now, he tells me he's an introvert. I, I don't buy that for a minute. He's very extroverted and just makes you feel real comfortable. He is the antithesis of my awkwardness. So he asked me, he said, I've, I've got a funeral, so I want you to attend this business at breakfast event as soon as he like uttered the words i started getting nervous already i was becoming awkward so i thought about this and of course i this happens the week that i'm going to preach sunday so there's just all these things and just my introvert was tapped out by tuesday and so i still had to go to a breakfast and preach and and all this other stuff so i get to the breakfast it's over at the Marriott, and so a lot of influential people there. It's in the oil and gas, so you've got manly men uh, who are here at this meeting, and so I, I'm just trying not to do anything stupid. I don't want to look dumb, so I, I've got myself prepared. So the first thing I do, I learned this from a TED Talk, and I don't know if it works or not, but I, I do it, is anytime I'm feeling nervous, so we get really small when we're nervous, and we just kind of, you know, you walk around like this, and, and it looks awkward. So this lady on a TED Talk proposed going into the restroom and doing some power poses. All right, so I I do this. I I don't know why I do. I don't think it helps me at all, but I do it just in hope that it might help a little bit. So I go immediately, as soon as I get there, I go straight to the bathroom, you know, make sure I look okay. I've got my suit jacket on. All right, there's nothing green hanging from my nose, so I'm okay. And then I start kind of doing my power pose. So the idea behind a power pose is make yourself big. Because when you're nervous, you want to get small. So you just kind of do things like you stretch. And you just try to take up as much room as possible. And so I'm in there. And it's always kind of awkward. <laughs> because you don't want somebody to walk in while you're like doing like the little giant's pose in the mirror. And, and like just, you know. Ugh. And so I do those power poses. I feel good. I go out. So the first thing a nervous person does when they go somewhere where they're feeling nervous is they get something to drink. I don't even like coffee. I hate coffee. But coffee gives my hands something to do and keeps me from doing something stupid with them. So I I walk around with coffee. makes me feel good. So I go to the coffee bar, and I'm getting my coffee, and and I can tell. I mean, you just feel it start welling up inside, and I'm kind of shaking the coffee cup and just trying not to do anything dumb. I don't want to spill the coffee everywhere. I do stuff like that. You can ask my wife. And so I get the coffee, Everything's good. I didn't spill anything. I'm about to go to my seat and I turn around and I almost manslaughter this lady at the food bar. Like, I don't know. I didn't see her because I was too worried about doing something dumb. And so I just like, she didn't like that at all. She gave me a dirty look and it was really upset that I almost ran over her. And so then I just like hurt. Like now I just got to get to my seat so I can reset. 
So I hurry up and I'm going and this lady says hi to me. I'm like, hi, I got to get to my seat. And then I realize it's one of our board members. Uh oh, (laughs) you should say more than just hi to your board member. So now I'm sitting there awkwardly just wishing that I could get through this day thinking about how I just snubbed a board member. And finally, I get through this energy conference. And so I'm getting ready to leave and I met one guy. That was my goal. I just want to meet one guy, talk to somebody I don't know. And so as I'm getting ready to leave, I say, hey, Mark, it was nice meeting you. And I get ready to go out the door. And then it happened. Sliding doors, enemy of awkward people. I went left, should have went right. And now I'm stuck in front of the door. And so Mark comes along and he's like, hey, let me get that for you, buddy. He kind of waves the sliding door. So I go out and now I'm just embarrassed. And so I, I'm walking outside and, and you know how you do it when you're embarrassed. You just kind of look down. You're not really paying attention. And then next thing I know, I had veered off the path and I was now like in the garden area of the Hilton or, or of the Marriott and I'm just kind of stuck again. And so they're walking on the path. And so I was like, oh, so then I get to my car still really feeling awkward, and I do this number. I back out, but because I'm afraid that I, I, I'm just now, I'm just all weird, I don't back out far enough. So now it looks like I can't drive my little compact car. I mean, I can drive an ambulance, but I can't drive a compact car. So I back out, and then I've got to like back out some more. Oh, it was horrible. Just awful. You say, well, what does that story have to do with anything? Well, this is, I, I fear that there is a way in which our church can be equally spiritually awkward. You see, what happens is, is when I get in these awkward moments, my brain disconnects from my body. I I just get entirely absorbed into my head. And so my body just kind of goes on autopilot and does whatever. And sometimes I end up in the garden. Sometimes I end up in front of a door that doesn't move because my brain checked out on me. So it's disconnected. I've disassociated And so my fear is, as we come into this morning, we have just spent five weeks with some of the most glorious, world-earth-shaking doctrines that have ever been preached. And this is my fear for Emmanuel. Is that somehow those doctrines of grace, which ought to empower us and enable us and change our lives, will become disassociated or disconnected from our body that it will stay in the head and never affect our hearts. And so I think that our church has the propensity to become just as equally awkward as I was on that Friday morning. So what have we been studying, these doctrines of grace? I want to go over them real quick because they're really going to be the foundation of our message this morning. Um, The doctrines of grace, we talked about sola scriptura, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, Sola Christus and Sola De La Gloria. Um, they are the five doctrines of grace. They are the foundations of our faith. They are these things that revolutionize the world. They are the things that cause the church to protest against Catholicism. In essence, they really are the gospel. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter number 2. I know it's too early. It's only November. Why are you having us go to Luke 2? It's not for what you think. This isn't a Christmas message. We talk about these glorious truths, these solas. And we talk about the gospel, but I wonder if we really know the gospel. And so Luke chapter number 2, we're going to go ahead and put it up on the screen for you as well. Luke 2, that 
familiar passage, the birth of Christ. And it says in verse number 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. I want you to get that for a minute. So the shepherds are out tending to their flock by night and you have a heavenly host. It's like a heavenly army that comes. And what is their declaration? So they storm the beaches of this world and they come declaring what? War? Peace. Shalom. And I think when we talk about the gospel, I want you to get this. This is exactly what the gospel is. That The gospel is the message that God's foreign policy until the second coming of Christ, is offering peace through Jesus. That is, that's good news. No wonder everybody got excited at the coming of Jesus. That is a great thing, and that is the essence of the gospel, that today if you are here, and you are at enmity with God, you are the enemy of God, and in your life you, you don't acknowledge Him, and He has no, no place in your life, that today... God offers the olive branch. He extends grace to you on behalf of Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing that is. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to go ahead and read it. This is maybe the most succinct um, explanation of the gospel in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 1. The Apostle Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So we think about the gospel. The gospel involves many different facets. There's actually three that, three different succinct things that the gospel accomplishes that comprise the gospel. And, and it's really easy to remember because our Christian holidays kind of revolve around it. So you have Christmas. And Christmas is the coming of Jesus. And it's in that coming of Jesus that God empties himself of his glory. So I like to think of it this way, that God left heaven and he came to a funeral. I mean, the, the world is a... Death has happened to all of us. Sin has happened and therefore death is the consequence has happened. And so God leaves heaven and he comes to earth and that's the coming of jesus of course we celebrate christmas is the coming of jesus the coming of god god dwelling among us the second part of the gospel involves jesus not just coming that's not good news if he only came it's good news because he came to die and so we celebrate on good friday the death of jesus through his dying god substituted himself for us it was my sin he took my place I should have been the one on the cross, but God substituted himself for me. We call that the atonement, and we celebrate that on Good Friday. But then there's this third part to the gospel. And it says that Jesus will come again. So we we at the return of Jesus from the dead, the resurrection, we celebrate that on Easter, Resurrection Sunday. 
But Jesus is now in that process of making all things new and restoring humanity fully. And so those three things comprise the gospel that we treasure here at Emmanuel. That Christ died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again three days later on behalf of us. We celebrate it through Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. And you know, as we celebrate those things, I think we've done a great job here at Emmanuel of really basing everything on those glorious truths of the gospel. That's why we preach on the Reformation. That's why we preach on the solas. That's why we have um, gospel-centered in everything that we do. But again, the problem is, and the thing that I fear, is that this gospel doctrine can be disconnected from our gospel lives. That we can have a ton of head knowledge and that we can have the best documents you've ever had. Boy, when I was a pastor, I spent a lot of time on documents. I love things. I don't know why that is. Uh, It's weird. Maybe it's because paper never talks back and I don't feel that awkward with paper. But, uh, you know, I, I would spend a lot of time with constitutions and mission statements and vision statements. And you know what? You can have the best of all of those things. But if your people aren't living out the gospel, it means nothing. Nothing. And so I fear that we can become disconnected, that our gospel doctrine will not influence our gospel lives. The gospel is not merely something to know. That's a good place to start. And this morning, maybe this is the first time that you've heard the gospel preached. It's the first time that you've heard that you can have peace with God aside from anything that you do. It's none of your works, lest man should boast, but it is the gift of God that God died on your behalf, that He raised from the dead, overpowering sin, death, and hell, overcoming for us, that He lived the life that we could not live and He died the death we should not have should have died. Maybe it's the first time that you've heard that this morning. And so this is a great place to start. Let that permeate your heart. But for many of us, we've heard that time and time again. We've been almost saturated with the truths of the gospel. The question that I would propose this morning is, is there a disconnect between what you know to be true about the gospel and how that plays out and informs your relationships? So you know the gospel in your head, but has that permeated your heart? So I want you to look with me. We're going to go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter number 1. As we talk about these solas, I think we sometimes get in the mind that Martin Luther, the great reformer, was really just about right doctrine. That he, he could care less about right living. I think a lot of times we think that these solas are very heady and, and they're very uh, academ, academ, academic. There we go. I want to say academia. They're academic in nature. But one of the things that Martin Luther said that was very good, that really struck me as I was preparing this message, was suffering. He talks about suffering and how the gospel informs how we suffer. He says, suffering is the school in which God chastens us and teaches us to trust in him so that our faith may not always stay in our ears and hover on our lips, but may have its true dwelling place in the depths of our hearts. You see, the solas, these great doctrines, were really pastoral in nature. They were issues that Martin Luther was very intimate with. Remember, he was so affected by the judgment and the weight of his sin that he was rendered paralyzed. 
He could not do anything other than obsess over his sin and how he would be condemned for sure to hell. It is out of this heart that Pastor Luther went on to pen those famous solas and became the teacher, the great teacher of the Reformation. So first, Peter, I want to introduce you to somebody that you're probably familiar with. And it's somebody that I think really personifies this disconnect very, very well. We all like Peter. We all like to pick on Peter. Peter was very blue-collar, so I think he's somebody that we can relate with here in rural Appalachia. Um, Peter was just your everyday fisherman, blue-collar guy, went to work every day. A little rough around the edges. He hung out with some guys who were called the Sons of Thunder. So I you know, probably would imagine you'd see him kind of at the local bar, um, hanging out, you know, pounding a few beers after work, that kind of thing. Just somebody that we, just your everyday average West Virginian. But Peter was actually, he did a lot of things that we don't really give him a lot of credit for. In Matthew chapter number 16, we're going to go ahead and put that up on the screen. Peter was actually a, a very astute theologian. Uh, he was the first to really get who Jesus was. In his entirety. So in Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples just point blank. He says, who, who do you say I am? We know that they say that maybe I'm a prophet or a good teacher, but who do you say that I am? And so Peter, being kind of the spokesman of the disciples, he, uh, he quickly quips back and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter had great doctrine, really good doctrine. And it came from God. Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. It wasn't of his own doing. It wasn't that he was just smart in and of himself. But the Holy Spirit had revealed that to Peter. Who exactly Jesus was. But that's not what we remember Peter for, is it? I ask uh, our resident theologian in the house, Cohen, who Peter was. Because Cohen, these Awana kids are really something. I mean, they are memorizing tons and tons of Scripture. So he says, oh yeah, I know that guy. I said, yeah, okay, well, tell me about that guy. He said he cut that dude's ear off. That's right, it was Malchus. He, Jesus was being arrested and Peter acting out the gospel, right? Just grabs his sword and cuts off the ear of Malchus. That's really what we remember Peter for. We don't remember Peter the theologian, although he had great doctrine. We remember all the missteps that Peter made throughout his life. We remember Peter the hypocrite. One of this is probably most profoundly stated when Peter actually has the audacity to rebuke Christ. Right? I mean, that's got to be kind of the height of your arrogance when you actually think that you know more than the Son of God. Right? And Peter does that. In Mark chapter number 8, verse number 32, Jesus very publicly says that he's got to suffer many things. And Peter very quickly pulls Jesus aside and says, May it never be. You're wrong. Not on my watch. And how does Jesus respond? 
get behind me, Satan. Could you imagine Jesus calling you Satan? Wouldn't that be a, a, just a real crushing experience? I mean, I, I don't know that we ever really fully just let that sink in, that Jesus called Peter Satan. Actually, and I didn't know this until this week, you remember James and John, like their mom kind of went to Jesus on the side and said, hey, you know, I hear you have two openings for your right hand and your left hand. How about plugging my boys in those spots? And it wasn't until this week that I realized the reason she probably felt justified in doing that was because Peter was called Satan, right? So Peter's out. Like the inner circle, Jesus, James, John, Peter, well, one is Satan. So we're probably going to, you know, he. it's safe to say he's not going to get the right or the left hand. And so she tries to plug her boys in. And that's what we really remember about Peter. Peter the hypocrite. Those times that even though he had great gospel doctrine, it didn't inform his life. There just was a disconnect there. He was still hasty. He was still uh, just quick to, to speak and slow to listen. But the biggest blunder comes in Galatians. So I, want you to turn, I told you to turn to First Peter. We're going to get there. But I want you to see this. Galatians 2 and verse number 11. Galatians 2 and verse number 11. I think this is Peter's biggest blunder. It's really a terrifying chapter in the Bible. Galatians chapter number 2 and verse number 11. The book of Galatians is, is really a book that's written to address false teaching in the church. And so you don't expect Peter's name to, to come up, but it does. And in chapter number 2 and verse number 11... It says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to the face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came and he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You feel the tension in that? That Peter, that, that Paul would go and it says he withstood him to the face. He got in the face of Peter, the rock of the church, and says, Listen, you're acting hypocritically. You say that you believe the gospel. You say that all men are welcome through Jesus. But your actions are saying something entirely different. And so this morning, the very first point that I want to make is that when you have gospel doctrine minus gospel culture, you have hypocrisy. Gospel doctrine minus gospel culture is hypocrisy. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says happened there in Antioch. Peter, of all people, should have known the grace of God and yet he acted in a very ungracious way towards those around him. And I don't know about you this morning, but Peter's not alone. I have countless incidences in my life where I have not acted in accordance with the Gospel. We talk about our relationships, good doctrine, gospel doctrine, the solas, ought to beautify our horizontal relationships. 
what does that mean? What well, means is like as a dad the other night I did something that really it, it hurt me. Cohen was was giving us he's just being a boy, you know, I mean stubborn uh and just wasn't it wasn't that he was being bad. And I don't even know that stubborn is right the word right really the right word. He was just being bad, kind of not really agreeable. Um no, that's stubborn. Yeah, he was being stubborn. <laughs> and and so he started to get out of the car and so I decided to shut him down. And to do that as a dad, that I don't have any problem getting really big then. And so I, I just I said, get back in that car right now. And just the tears started coming. So at first I thought he was just upset because he got in trouble. And then, then he said it. He said, I just wanted to hug you. Oh. Oh. <laughs> so I spent the next like 15 minutes just trying to console him. I'm sorry, buddy. I still don't know that it's true. He has my genes, and he's a little opportunist, and I think he might have taken an opportunity. But man, how I talk to my kids. I know so much about the Gospel, but does it show in how I talk to my wife? Does it show in how I talk about the church? You know, some of us, I, I remember kind of one family in particular that I was with that they always it was like the church was just always a subject for for commentary. And I, I just remember that there was always something wrong. Always something wasn't right. It, it always didn't really quite meet their needs the way that it should. And and that was just such a such an awful aroma. Because it wasn't anything gospel. It was just the flesh. So I don't know if you're like that this morning. I know there's hope, and that's what I want to get to. I don't want to drive you down, because I think that at our core, if we're really honest, we already know that we're that way. I think we get that. I think we see our imperfections every single day. I think when we come in here, what we need is an extra dose of grace. And so I want to show you that this morning. What does it look like, gospel doctrine and gospel culture? Turn to 1 Peter, chapter number 1. He said that right doctrine ought to beautify our relationships. Neil read Romans 15, just a, a wonderful passage. And Romans 15, 7 says that we ought to welcome each other the way that Christ has welcomed you. That we ought to honor people the way that Christ has honored us. That we ought to forgive people the way that Christ has forgiven us. See how that works? It always goes back to what Jesus has done on our behalf. Because when we do opposite of that, we actually are the antithesis of the Gospel. When we are unforgiving, what we are saying is, forgiveness is out of your reach. That God's hand is not able to save. And when we are harsh in our tone, we undo the love of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. Remember in Luke 2, He came declaring peace, shalom. They were not at war. But what does gospel doctrine and gospel culture look like? I love the book of 1 Peter. It's a book that kind of hides in the back of your Bible. 
But man, is it really, it's five chapters of goodness. So I, I don't have the time to go through it all. But I would love, just spend some, I mean, it takes literally like 20 minutes to read the book. It's not very long, but just make it a habit. But I just want to point out a few things. What does a gospel culture look like? First Peter chapter number 2. It says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy, all envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, verse number 4, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I you to get that this morning, that our churches ought to be a little taste of heaven on earth. Now, i, I got to be honest, I, most of the churches I've been in have not been anything like heaven. Um, having pastored a few and, and having been in a few, I can tell you that oftentimes we really fail in that mission. But they ought to be. Peter says that he is building up a spiritual house, and that house is not this building, it is us. We, the church, the people of God, are being changed by the gospel of God. And that we are being built up into a spiritual house so that our relationships horizontally ought to be made beautiful by the doctrines of grace. That ought to be a little bit of heaven on earth. I have a doctor at work, Dr. Omar. I love to listen to Dr. Omar's stories. He's 81 and still volunteers at the free clinic. Amazing, amazing guy. Dr. Omar grew up in Afghanistan. He's seen everything. Um, There's just, I mean, just amazing what he has been through in his lifetime. But he told me the story when he was a little boy. He said that there was the embassy there where he grew up, the U.S. embassy in Afghanistan. And he he said as a little boy, he loved to spend time there. Now, this was before terrorism and all that. So the embassy was open to anybody there in Afghanistan that just wanted to come in. And so he said growing up, in, in, you know, the 40s and 50s, he said, we would go there and you would see like all this space age technology. I mean, imagine being from Afghanistan and going in and seeing a fax machine or a phone and just all of this amazing stuff. And he said, we never wanted to leave. We just hung out at the embassy because it was just, it was like going to America. You know, I wonder if when people come into our church, if it's like going to heaven. You know, when we encounter people, when we have interactions, when we relate with one another, we ought to turn away and feel as though we just encountered Jesus. Do people leave your presence feeling like they just encountered Jesus? Does my son feel like he encountered Jesus when I talked to him? Does my wife feel like she encountered Jesus when we have our conversations? Does your pastor feel like he encountered Jesus when you come and have a conversation with him? He didn't tell me to say that, but I was a pastor, so I kind of know how that goes. Amen. What she said. 
So we ought to be built up a spiritual people and our churches ought to be a foretaste of what heaven will be like someday. But look at this. I, I love this. In verse number 20, or chapter number 1 and verse number 22, something else we see in 1 Peter. So what does a gospel culture look like? The first thing is it looks a lot like heaven. But number two, it's a, it's a culture that permeates and is filled with love. Peter says this, he says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love..." Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You know, the Bible never calls us to love moderately. Have you ever noticed that? That there's not like a little bit of love, there's just a whole lot of love. Earnest love, it says. That's what church should be. That's what gospel culture is. The way in which Jesus pursued you is the way that you ought to pursue each other. That as He has done for us, we ought to do... For each other. The Edwards, Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah, said this. They said the meaning of life is a series of intense loves. That being so intensely loved by Jesus, that He would go to the cross on our behalf, that He would suffer these things for our good. Being intensely loved like that ought to enable us to intensely love those who are around us. As Jesus has been to me, so I will be to others. So I want to just imagine for a minute, what does gospel culture look like at Emmanuel? What does it look like? If we had it, would we know it? What, what would it be? The first thing is, I think it would be need with expectancy. Need with expectancy. I think that a gospel culture is comprised of humans who know that they are in desperate need of grace. Need with expectancy. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's need, right? When you're poor in spirit. Some of you are there this week. Some of you have had an awful week. Some of you have loved ones who are suffering, who maybe have an illness, or maybe you've gotten some bad financial news. I don't know what it is, but some of you are there. You're poor in spirit. You're suffering. Life is difficult. It's filled with trials. And so we as a church ought to come in feeling that, that poorness in spirit, but also expecting, because the next part of that verse is, blesses the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we come into this body, that ought to be the encouragement that no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what degree of suffering, no matter how bad it's getting here on this earth, there is a future hope and there's a future grace. And when we come in, we ought to take each other and love each other earnestly and point each other to that future hope. And that's what First Peter is all about. It's saying even though you must suffer a little while, remember Jesus suffered for you and you can suffer well and you can endure and you can stay because one day there's going to be a great glory revealed in you. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. That's why I love church. I've always loved church. Ever since I was a little kid, I loved church. Because when you go there, it ought to be just this tremendous encouragement it ought to be this hope we ought to provoke one another to love and good works i love what ray ortland says he says in the beginnings of his church emmanuel there in nashville 
He says in the beginning of the church, their worship leader had just started coming. It wasn't the worship leader then. And he said that his impression of the church was that the people were just so broken and so poor in spirit that they didn't have time or energy to do anything else. Yeah, that's my prayer for Emmanuel. That's my prayer for the family that is quick to commentate on every little thing in the church, who's quick to criticize, who is always constantly dwelling on the negativity. That's my prayer for you. Because I will tell you that once you stop looking outwardly at all the faults of everybody else and you start looking inwardly, you don't have time. <laughs> like my list is so long, I don't have the time to look left or right and pick out their faults. And as I grow in my awareness of my own faults, the beauty of it is I grow in my awareness of the greatness of the gospel. That the more I'm convinced that I'm a sinner and the more that I realize that just about everything I do is wrong, I realize just how great of a sacrifice that was for Jesus to make on the cross. And what a glorious gospel of grace that it is. 1 Peter 5 says this. He reminds us, he says, that we should act with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Need with expectancy. I hope that everybody, as we come into church on Sunday morning, we are just taking that posture of humility and we have an expectation that God is going to meet us. He's going to give us through His Word exactly what we need to remain faithful and true to the Gospel. But here's number two. This is the other thing I think it looks like. And this is important because I, I have uh, I've failed in this area in, in past churches. These, these doctrines are so exciting. And they are so great. And I, I love Reformed theology. I love, love, love it. It, it absolutely it changed my life when I understood the, the reality of those teachings. However, I have been places that have greatly influenced my life and have helped me live a gospel life that were not reformed. And so I think it's important for us to be what I would call reformed inclusive. Right? I mean, I think we should have a church where John Piper and Tim Keller can come here. I mean, I don't think we should exclude either one. They're both amazing. And what that means is we go back to Peter, and we're, we're focused on those things of first importance. The gospel, that's why I say we're gospel-centered. That those secondary issues... Not that they're not important, but they are less important. They are second order important. As long as we hold to these tenets of the gospel, as long as we hold to the gospel, that that ought to be enough. John MacArthur says it this way, you don't want to have your church wrapped so tightly that it would exclude some of the apostles. Right? Like, I mean, that's, that's not good. And sometimes we can get a little carried away. And so I think that's important that we have, a, again, just a posture of welcome towards those who are outside the body. But then also gospel reassurance. Gospel reassurance. So I think you're already in 1 Peter 5. When I was preparing this message, I I was afraid that I I would leave you here. 
Man, we do that a lot in church. We we just we we preach and and we get heavy and it get, it gets hard to hear and, and we talk about sin and then it's time to go and we leave people in their sins. I don't want to do that this morning. I don't. I, we started with this as a reminder. Remember the slide that talks about all the things that Jesus is for us. And I want you to see this morning that there is hope. If you're saying I am a hypocrite this morning, you are in good company. Because I likewise am a hypocrite. And just about everybody in here has somewhere in their life where gospel doctrine is not informing gospel culture. And so what do we do about that? The very first part of my ministry, I know what I did. I hooped and hollered and yelled and screamed and pounded pulpits. And people still remained unchanged. I would get up and I would preach hard. And if it was something that my church was struggling with, I'd preach even harder. And I'd look at the people who were doing it when I said it. A lot of times I would mirror their behavior towards me. Rather than give grace and rather than point to Jesus, I would use every every tool in my human arsenal to combat them. I would scheme and plan and plot and manipulate. I think my heart was right. I wanted people to change. But I didn't understand how that happened. It wasn't until I read the parable of the hidden treasure that, that God really got a heart of my heart, got a hold of my heart and changed how I did ministry. You remember the parable of the hidden treasure was this. It was that a man was looking at a piece of property and they wanted way too much for it. Way too much. And so he has no intention of buying this lot. But as he's looking at it and kind of entertaining the realtor, he stumbles over something. So he, he bends down and he dusts it off and finds out that there's hidden treasure buried on this overpriced lot. All of a sudden, the lot isn't so overpriced. <laughs> he hurriedly goes to the realtor and says, I'll pay you whatever you want. Sure, asking price, here it is. Let's, let's buy this. I want to get this today. You say, what does that have to do with ministry? It has everything to do with ministry. Because the guy was never going to pay. See, he, he thought that he was paying, that he was suffering. We, we present church that way, that you've got to pay a terrible cost. So you've got to forsake all. And you say, that guy, poor that guy who paid way too much for that land. No way, poor that guy. He got treasure. He didn't suffer. He didn't give up anything. He paid too much to get way more in exchange than just land. And so I realized in my ministry that what people need is not a call to duty, but that they need to see and treasure Christ for who He is. That if you're coming here and you think you're giving up too much and it costs too much and you're doing too much, you miss Jesus somewhere. Because the guy went to the bank and he wasn't like, oh, I can't believe I have to pay this much for this land. He's like, I can't wait to buy this land. There's treasure on that land. And Jesus is treasure. And so, this morning, if you say, I'm having trouble, my life isn't really matching up to the gospel. I've got good gospel doctrine. I affirm everything that our church affirms. I'm in the gospel-centered crowd, but gospel living does not come easy for me. What I would say is that the gospel has never truly landed. Because when it lands, you will see and savor Jesus for the treasure that He is and everything else. You don't give it in duty. You give it in delight. Delight in this. 
And so when we come to 1 Peter, we say, oh my goodness, how do I, how did Peter get right? Peter has this disconnect. He's a hypocrite. His life doesn't match what he knows to be true about the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 gives us the answer. 2 Corinthians 8. So what do I do this morning, Josh, if I feel like there's a disconnect? Well, there was a disconnect in the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter number 8. church at Corinth got a lot of things right. A lot of things right. There's one thing that they didn't get right, and that was giving. <laughs> so they were giving of their time, and they were. but when it came to money, they just kind of had a little too tight of a grip on their wallet. Now this sermon's not about money. So I want you to, this is about seeing an example of how the gospel informs our behavior. So 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 and verse number 9. How do you think the Apostle Paul is going to handle this? Is he going to hoop and holler and yell and scream and command and tell them in duty they ought to give more? Is he going to shame them? This is what he does. Verse number 8, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Did you catch that? He says it's not a command. I'm not telling you to do it out of duty. It's not something that you should feel like you're suffering for. But he reminded them of the gospel. He goes back and he says, you have, you've forgotten this. Peter in Second Peter, that's exactly the phrase he uses. He says, you have forgotten that you were saved. You have forgotten what Jesus has done on your behalf. And he says, I don't, I'm not going to sit here as an apostle and command you to give more. Although he could have, he had the apostolic authority to do so. But he said, I want to point you back to Jesus who emptied himself of his glory, who left his estate in heaven, who humbled himself in the form of a servant and became a man on your behalf, who suffered all things on your behalf, who was even crucified, but raised again in order that he might redeem, in order that he might empower and enable us to live a gospel life. You know, there are times when I am harsh with my wife. There are times when I'm not hospitable as a brother or sister in Christ. There are times when the gospel is disconnected from those horizontal relationships in my life. But what I need is more gospel. It always comes back to gospel. Martin Luther When he read Romans, what he found was that the just live by faith to faith. That grace is not just sufficient for justification, but also sanctification. 
that the way you're going to grow in your life this morning, the way that you're going to be a better mom or dad, the way you're going to be a better church member, the way that you're going to be a better neighbor to your community, the way you're going to do those things is by fully allowing the gospel to land on you. And that's why everything that we do as a church is aimed at throwing the gospel out there because we want it to land on you. Because when the gospel lands on you fully, what it's going to do is it's going to do exactly what it intends. It's going to create a spiritual people. It's going to change your heart. Your heart is going to change and then your relationships to the left and the right are going to change. When you go home into your communities, your relationship with your neighbor is going to change. No longer are you going to have territorial disputes. No longer are you going to worry that your neighbor is over on your side of the property. You know why? Because you've been given all things in Christ. You can suffer loss. It doesn't matter what I give up. I have everything that I need. Jesus is all. It's going to enable you to be a missionary in your community. It's going to enable you to go to work and work as unto the Lord for your employer. It's going to enable you to be an example. It's going to empower the gospel so that when it goes forth, people see your good works and they glorify God. You see, those great doctrines that we've learned about, they only bring glory to God when they inform our lives. Right? If it's just words on a paper, if we leave an unchanged people, God does not glory in hypocrisy. Peter struggled with these truths. He struggled with hypocrisy. Even to the point that he denied Jesus three times. And what it was his saddest hour. Jesus, he prophesied, he said it would happen, and Peter did it. As Peter walked away crushed, having betrayed the Savior he loved so much, something amazing happened. Jesus raised from the dead. You know who he sought out? Peter. Did Peter do... Was it anything that Peter did? Did Peter just magically change himself? Did he go from being a hypocrite to being somebody whose life was informed by the Gospel? No, Jesus did it. Jesus went back. Jesus restored him. Jesus encouraged him. And that's why I love 1 Peter chapter number 5. And I love the very ending because this is the same grace that Peter is communicating to his hearers. Peter knew it because he lived it. He knew what it was like to fall short. He knew what it was like to fail. And yet Peter says this, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. If you could do it yourself, it wouldn't bring God glory. If you could inform your life, it wouldn't bring God glory. But because Jesus does the work on our behalf, not just justifying us, but sanctifying us and glorifying us, it's all Jesus' work. I want you to rest in that this morning. This church, by the way, will not fall, it will not succeed or fail on the work of Pastor Bird. It just won't. 
God is sovereign. Jesus is in control. Right? Nothing usurps that. It's not in our ability. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we get that and we work, but we forget the second part of that verse. For it is God who works in you. It's not you. It's Jesus working on our behalf. And say, so what is our proper, what is our posture towards that? What do we do? We got to do something. Now, you have faith. You trust that that's true. That Jesus is going to change you from the inside out. That Jesus is going to use this church to change Northview. That Jesus is going to do an incredible work, not for our glory, but for His. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to be said about gospel culture. God, I I love this church. I love its people. I'm so thankful that you have brought my family and I here. God, you know our hearts and you know that we rejoice in just being a part of this body. God, like all bodies though, we have we have need for grace. We come earnestly expecting you to meet us. I pray God every Sunday, every time we come through these church doors, that we would come expecting you to meet us, to provide all that we need. God, salvation is your work, it's not ours. Your grace is sufficient. It is sufficient to save, it is sufficient to sanctify. It's sufficient for us to live lives that bring you honor and glory. And God, I pray your grace upon us this morning. I pray, God, that your gospel would reign supreme, not just in our minds, but in our hearts. God, I pray that our communities would know us as a people that are different, a people who have been radically changed by you. I pray that our neighbor would know that we're different. I pray that our boss at work would know that we're different. I pray, God, that our spouse would testify to that and our kids might be raised in homes that are seasoned with grace. God, I pray against all the works of the devil. I pray against our flesh and all the sins that so easily beset us. My fear is the fear that I have for everybody. That we'll lose sight of the gospel and we'll turn on one another. That we will blame. That we will slander. That we will accuse. And ultimately, God, that we would cannibalize each other. All because we forget the grace that you've had for us. Thank you for all that you have done. Thank you for the peace and the shalom that is available to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we go out into the world today with that realization and that freedom that comes from knowing that we are 100% justified by the work of Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.